I have one of the legends, uh, the CEO and co-founder of Overtime. He's been around the game a long time, doing things at the highest level. Dan Porter, welcome to The Playbook. Thanks for having me. You know, it's so interesting because so many people want to work in sports. And I always say, working in sports, like saying, I, I want to work in oxygen. You know, it's, it's not an industry or even a career anymore. Uh, it's just a backdrop to skills, knowledge, and desire. And there's so many different skills, so many different things that we need to know and people we need to know and so many ways to accommodate our desire. For you, how have you seen the industry or career of sports evolve as you've been involved in sports and entertainment for such a long time? And now today, there's so many different aspects. How has that evolved for you? Yeah, I would say it's interesting because I didn't always want to work in sports. I just wanted to do interesting things and I happened to intersect with sports. And uh, several years ago, when former Commissioner David Stern was still with us, he came and gave a talk to all of our interns. And if you intern at overtime, you're hoping that you get a job in sports. And he said to them, he said, you guys just, you need to be good at something. Like I was a lawyer, that's what I was good at. And so nobody, nobody's good at sports. Like what is, what, what is your, you know, what is your skill? And if it ends up there, it ends up there. And I think for me, um, I was interested in entrepreneurship and kind of content and, and digital stuff. And I think we kind of hit a realm where there was a lot of generational change in the audience in sports. There was impact of social media, even the impact of COVID and stuff like that. And, um, you know, there's probably been more changes and transformations in the last five years when you look at NIL, the MLS going Apple TV, rule changes in the NBA and the NFL, um, all kinds of stuff like that. So for me, I kind of, I make my bones when there's a lot of disruption because that's an opportunity to get in and do new stuff. And it just happens to be a golden age of that. It is certainly a golden age of that. And things are accelerating, especially change uh, so fast. Uh, but more importantly, I love the phrase, I just want to do interesting things. And one of the things that I see from a lot of my interns and ones that apply or, or uh, request help is they don't know what is interesting to them. They're, they're in search of something that's already there. What are some of the tips that you would give a, a young entrepreneur that is looking for interesting things that may or may not even be aligned or supplemental to their skills, knowledge, and desire. How did you find these interesting things? And I looked through your career from Branson to all the companies I invested, WME, and even today, which we'll get into the OT7, but how are you putting yourself in a position to find these interesting things to do? It's a great question. I'd say three things. I would say that you know, I think when you talk about entrepreneurship and you're trying to give advice to young people, one of the things that I always say, and a lot of people say this is, become an expert in what the problem is. Like you don't have to become an expert in the product or in anything else like that. But if you know the problem really intimately, you can kind of work backwards from there. And that's why a lot of times people who start companies, I mean, there are numerous companies in health where somebody had a health issue in their family or with themselves and you become so knowledgeable, you know more about this challenge and this problem, you know more about 
Gen Z or anything else like that, that you can work backwards from there. I'd say the second thing is that I think when you're young, you just have to try a lot of different stuff because school isn't really designed to teach us about kind of what the working world works. I, I teach at NYU and I always tell my students what you major in has a very low correlation to what you're going to do. And they're just like appalled and shocked by that. But you kind of get out there and I'd say, you know, in my career, I think I just said yes to a lot of things. I didn't exactly know what's going to happen. And I think people don't like that advice because there's this belief that you have to have this plan and then you go out and execute in the plan. But the world changes so much. And, you know, opportunity is sometimes being in the right place at the right time. And you don't control that. A friend of yours gets a job and tells you about another job. You meet somebody on an airplane, like you kind of go with those things and you learn as you go and you figure it out. And rejection is part of that as well. And being open to the lessons from setbacks, failures and mistakes and rejection. And I think when I look at your career, I think of Jack Canfield, who I've been blessed to write my third book with. And I was just astounded when he told me, you know, I went to 120 different publishers and all who told me I was crazy. And you talked about the depth of knowledge of being an expert in your subject matter. One of the dangers of that that I have found is that if you are uh, an expert at your subject matter with deep understanding, you're gonna face rejection because you have to practice dumbing down what you know. And I talked to Sadhguru uh, and he was so appalled that I, I'm not appalled, but just he thought it was a great question. I said, dude, how do you dummy down what you know? You're the Sadhguru, you know, and how do you get the masses to understand the enlightenment of the universe? I, not to give you too much of a compliment, I think you received over a hundred uh, rejections from investors on overtime. Uh, I think I was one of them embarrassing enough uh, when Zach came to me, uh, but more important, more importantly, though, I think it's under, you know, it's important to take that as a compliment that I just know this stuff so well that I see what other people don't see. And I just got to get better at articulating the quantitative value of what I see or giving credibility to it. How much of what uh, you know, do you feel is in the interpretive state of being able to articulate that value when you do have such a deep understanding or different understanding than the masses? It's, it's a really good question because the irony is that you actually want to invest in somebody who knows way more than you do and has so much domain expertise. Um, and yet we all process it through our own limited filters because we can't know everything about everything. So I would literally like pitch overtime to a big investor and they'd be like, oh, my brother-in-law is a high school basketball coach. Why don't I think, why don't I ask him what he thinks? It's like, oh, I was going to invest in Uber, but my uncle used to drive a cab. Why don't I call him and ask about the Uber business model? It's just kind of like, and, and I think the problem is that, you know, in a way, if you're trying to do something ambitious and different, like you're going to have haters. And in fact, if you don't have enough haters, you're probably not trying hard enough to do something different. And then people get very distracted by the haters. And so I, I kind of made the mistake of assuming, well, I've been successful twice. I started and sold two different companies. Like if you believe that there's an opportunity at a high level and you believe in me, then you should back me and I'll figure it out. And I, I think it's funny because I literally had people pass based on like a very specific 
thing that was in the deck or a specific plan. And within four weeks, we had already modified that plan to do something else. Um, and I do think like for, for starting companies and raising money, storytelling is really powerful. Like people want to follow the story. They want to understand the origin story. They want to understand how things make sense in their mind. I think the best investors realize when they're uncomfortable and still sometimes invest and the worst assume they're smarter. And the fact is that lots of people who could have invested in overtime, I actually don't think they're smarter than I am. I think they're dumber actually based, not based on my own arrogance, based on the kind of questions they asked, which were really not well-researched and off base. And there were multiple times when I kind of, in the middle of the process, I just said, I don't actually even want money from this person. And I would just try to end it. And there are other people who would ask me questions that would set me back on my heels. And I'd be like, okay, this is somebody who I want to work with because they're smarter than I am. And they're looking at it um, in, a, in a different way. So it's a really interesting dance. I would say, you know, I spent almost 10 years of my career working in education. And the worst part about working in education is that everybody went to high school. And so everybody has an opinion and it's usually based on whatever their own high school opinion was. You know what these kids need? They need X. Because when I was in high school and I was like, well, that's great. But if that were still working, then we'd be in a different place. And so, uh, you know what sports really needs? Because I'm a sports fan. Okay. So, you know what? I also know how to put on a Band-Aid, but I'm not going to do surgery on you. I think people are very not conscious of their own limitations to some extent. Absolutely. And through that paradigm shift, and I have invested in some of your companies and others I've turned down for various reasons. But the one thing and one reason I would invest is many, many others have notable people from Bezos to Drake, et cetera, uh, is the entrepreneur themselves. And Zach uh, and you are extraordinary entrepreneurs that have both emotional intelligence, which is a necessity, but there's a new intelligence that I look for. And you, I think, are great uh, a representative of it and it's an adaptable intelligence and the adaptable nature of overtime you have i think and for you know forgive me if i'm wrong but i think you have over 50 million followers over 75 million 75 million over what a billion and a half views a day or a month i'm sorry yes probably far over that that doesn't happen in you know i do have some form of expertise in digital marketing and media now uh, that doesn't happen without adaptable intelligence. The, you know, number one criteria of success in building an ambassadorship and building those views, which are completely different things than followers, which you have it over time, is the adaptability and the ability to learn and move quickly. You've done a lot of adapting to get to the success that you had. You created some great IP. What do you look at to things are moving so quickly to adapt so quickly and get that alignment for the success that you've had? I'd say two things. I'd say, I feel like, for example, pivot is one of the most overused and kind of wrong-headed terminology. Like if you start a company and you're making orange juice and then you pivot to make jogging shorts, like you're not pivoting, you just kind of blew it. Whereas the reality is, is like, we're making a thousand pivots every day. Like I'll never forget somebody said, when you drive a car, you make like a thousand decisions a minute, right? You're looking, you're looking up, your hands, your feet, everything is like that. And you don't think about it because you're not conscious. And I think internalizing that approach to business. 
So you've got all your internal stuff, all the things your people are telling you, everything you see on the ground. Then you've got external stuff. Um, I mean, I think about my last company, which was a gaming company, and we sold it based on an iPhone game. And we started a company, the iPhone hadn't even been invented. You know, when we started overtime, uh, Netflix was really the only streaming company in Hulu. And we're like, it's all going to be about streaming. There's an opportunity. And it became clear in a year or two that everyone got in the streaming game. They all had $10 billion to spend. And that wasn't an opportunity at all. And that's fine. Like stuff happens. You have to kind of look for the things that you should do and the things that you shouldn't do. And you can't let the outside market dictate everything you do. But I spend a lot of time paying attention to everything that's going on in the market and, and trying to find a place of kind of innovation. Like if you remember when Groupon launched, there were like 110 companies that launched Groupons right after they did. Um, it's the same thing, like NBA Top Shot was like revolutionary around basketball highlights, but that doesn't mean that I have to go into NFTs and just do basketball highlights. Like there's gonna be something else. Um, and that's the kind of hard and scary part where you're constantly this kind of mixture of 10,000 small decisions changing and also figuring out where creativity is. And I think creativity is a often unused business weapon. I think you don't learn it in school. School is about stamping out creativity and conforming. You definitely don't learn it at business school because that's completely about conforming. Um, and so being able to make sure that we hire and surround ourselves with interesting disruptive thinkers, that I pay attention to everybody I talk to in basketball and football, players, former players. We just sat down with Jay Williams, who's on the board of Overtime Elite, and he was just talking about his journey. And there was, I was just like, there's so much to learn. And my whole time I was like, he said this, it went into my brain. How do I use that in Overtime Elite to figure out something and give ourselves an advantage? And you continue to do so with the attitude of being more interested than interesting, even with the great success that you've had. And one of the things that we both are in the realm working with is you have started with Cam Newton, uh, the OT7, which is a seven on seven football league already with 18 teams uh, with a variety of really cool names, by the way. David Isaacs and I, uh, one of the founders with Campbell McLaren of uh, UFC, uh, we have the, the A7FL, which is a tackle uh, sevens league in its A season. So I understand the space very well. What were some of uh, your decision-making uh, processes to start a seven-on-seven seven league with the expansion of the IP that Overtime is having? Why did you choose, you know, seven-on-seven seven, uh, to kind of expand that IP? And obviously Cam Newton's a, a great choice for that, uh, but I'm curious why you chose to get in the space like I did. I would say, like, look, we, I definitely want to do something in football. I mean, it does take a rocket scientist to know how big football is in this country. I mean, it's essentially our national pastime at this point. And we're, we're talking about NFL college football and aggregate is even a bigger audience segment than the NFL. It's just massive. And yet like it, it is also fairly saturated. Like there's no shortage of people writing about it, football games to watch, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. And I noticed early on that like in the spring when we would be looking for content, there were kind of two things that would always perform for us outside of kind of helmet football. One was like really big guys lifting huge amounts of weights. People never get tired of watching that. There's not really a business there. And the other was wide receiver cornerback duels 
Like, and I was always like, why aren't they wearing helmets? And they were like, oh, it's spring football, seven on seven. And that started kind of like a two year process of just like learning, figuring out, engaging our team. We have a lot of folks on our team um, who were doing commitment videos with, with high school football players years ago, very passionate about football. And it was clear to me that at the level we went after, which was kind of 17 and 18, that seven on seven was from a business perspective, a registration sport, meaning like you would do these tournaments and you would collect registration fees, but there was no media around it. And what we were good at is essentially creating media and, and storytelling and everything else like that. And we met Cam, Cam's very involved, he coaches his own team. And what also became clear to me is that it's very regional, like everybody in Georgia has played everybody else. Everybody in South Florida has played everybody else. And so when we had this idea to formalize it, make it a league, make it a media product and launch it in Vegas, the first thing all the team said is like, oh, I want to play those guys who I always watch on the internet, but we never get a chance to play them. And we were like, come and play and do it. And I was still not sure when I showed up in Vegas, but it was clear that it's really fun. It's clear that I think we had 400 players of which 280 had D1 offers with four of the top quarterbacks. Uh, actually, I was surprising how engaged our audience was in terms of knowing who those players were and knowing those teams. Um, and it's clear that it's really, it's fun to capture their facial expressions. It was just a lot of upside and the players were really game for it. It, it had like a really different, football culture is just different than basketball. Like there's no end zone celebrations in basketball and now in pro football it's allowed. But so to me, the thing that makes sport great and the thing that gives you some level of advantage is if when you storytell, you can explain all the culture around it, right? LeBron playing in the Drew League is like, it's just, it's just part of basketball culture. It's like breaks the internet. And so understanding all this latent football culture that was there as well as what are the rules of seven on seven, attracting all these good players. And the crazy thing for me isn't that we did tens of millions of views. It's that rankings changed. Uh, one of our quarterbacks like doubled his NIL value based on it. People got offers based on it. It became clear that we could participate in the whole ecosystem around college football and college football recruiting, which I think is really bigger than basketball. Basketball is really personality driven, but it's it's less outside of like Duke and a couple of commitments, it's less recruiting driven. I mean, we had 50 media credentials show up uh, at OT7 Rivals 24 seven, all these recruiting guys. And we had printouts for them and everything else like that. So it's like we got this core overtime audience, our core audience, but then around it, we ended up with the whole college football audience as well. That was like, oh, this guy's coming to play at my school. And that was really cool. Well, beyond cool, the insights and the nuggets that we received here, I'm going to have to nickname this episode, the Playbook Elite. So tell Jay, tell Jay Williams, he, he didn't make my playbook elite. He had my regular playbook, but uh, holy moly, Dan, I'm even more confident in the investments I've made in companies that you've brought to me and a little bit disappointed in myself with overtime, but never too late to promote and to help. Uh, Zach and you are doing an extraordinary job. I look forward to covering myself more of the overtime things and working with you. Dan Porter, this has to be the playbook elite now, co-founder and CEO of Overtime. Thank you so much for joining me 